Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. Now, fathers, we're coming before you. We're coming before you as people who need to, first and foremost, make absolutely certain we put our faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You're the sovereign God who sent the second member of the Trinity into this world via Bethlehem to die on Calvary. As we begin to track through the scriptures your purpose, your plan for redemption, we find the pivotal point where Jesus Christ would cry out, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Only three days later be raised from the dead. It's the climactic point in all of time. Father, what we're asking now is that we take that climactic point and see how it relates to practical, everyday living. So as we examine our past, we evaluate our present, we plan our future, we do so with the cross of Jesus Christ central to all that we're about. So Father, now in these minutes to come, once again, Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The next time you're in an airport... I want you to notice the difference between the passengers who have confirms tickets and those who are on standby. There were flight delays and there was movement afoot throughout the airport and all of a sudden the people who were on standby were beginning to get stressed out. You see, airline employees and some of their family and friends can travel standby often at discounted rates or for free, but they typically have lower priority than the regular passengers and are only allocated a seat after all the other passengers paying regular fare have been allocated seats. And two employees were racing up and they were stressing because they needed to be in Philadelphia by such and such time to get back to work and they worried about their job security. And so as they were watching the flight filling up, they were trying to figure out how they were going to get from A to B to C to D and so on, and were going to have to take a circuitous route. So all of a sudden they find that they just got up and bolted towards a, a different area of the airport to try to find their way to get to where they needed to go. And I watched this unfold, and I was thinking of First John as all this was taking place. You know, I'd be covering this in, in 2017. Because it seemed to me that as I looked around, those that had confirmed tickets were relaxed. They were busy just checking out news on their laptops. But on the other hand, those who were on standby were stressed. They were constantly running back and forth to the counter. They were evaluating where things stood.
They were considering their alternatives along the way. And I wrote down in my notes at that point that what we were dealing with here is what I would call the assurance factor. The assurance factor. Now, there are a lot of people who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ who are treating their experience with God as if they are on standby. What God has done is that he has secured a place for the one who's put faith and trust in Jesus, you see. And the basis for internal security is what? Eternal security. But you and I live around people who are incredibly stressed by the issues of life and seem to be treating their life journey as if it is one continual standby experience. And so what I want to do is to contrast the confirmed tickets with those people who are on standby and draw out for us now the implications of this as we're making our way into First John, continuing on now in our expositions week by week, and we're up to chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. And what I want to do with you this morning is to draw out two what I will call rounds of assurance that are found in these verses. You've got your inserts in front of you, Lord willing, and as you do so, what you're going to notice is that the first round begins with the heading, I am writing to you. You're going to see that phrase appearing in verse 12, in verse 13, first part of 13, second part of verse 13, and so on. And under each heading of the I am writing to you, you're going to find people groups, little children, fathers, Young men. And lo and behold, halfway through all this, what happens? He subtly changes the way in which he phrases this, doesn't he? And shifts from the phrase, I am writing to you, to simply the phrase, I write to you. You see that the last part of verse 13 and on into verse 14. What's going on? I am writing to you as present tense. I write to you as past tense. It's almost as if he took one round, wanted to address people that uh, were on his heart, got up in his Ephesus cafe, went and got himself a cup of coffee, came back, sat down on his laptop, and then did round two of assurance for people. And now, second time around, he wants to review what he has previously done and now reassure them after he has previously assured them. So we're going to look at these two rounds of assurance now, and we're going to ask ourselves, am I treating my Christian experience as though I'm on standby, or do I have a confirmed ticket, if you will? You begin with verse 12. And notice he begins with the phrase, I am writing to you, present tense. But now he utilizes his first category of people that he is writing to, And he says, I'm writing to you, little children. Now, I get it, don't you? After all, the Apostle John is is in his late 80s, and these are people who have probably digested the Gospel of John, read his evangelistic tract, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and now want a sequel. 
And so the sequel is the first epistle of John. And he's showing them, now that you're saved, here's how you grow in your salvation. And he begins this by stating, describing them as little children. Little children. The Greek word here, technia, used to describe someone who has been begotten by the parent. But what fascinates me is that the Apostle John, who was so influenced, wasn't he, by his Savior Jesus Christ, in that upper room in John chapter 13, verse 33, would be recalling in his evangelistic tract that Jesus Christ in that upper room had said to his disciples, little children, technia, Yet a little while I'm with you, and you'll seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's speaking affectionately. And it's almost as if Jesus' words have rubbed off now on John. And so for this next generation of believers, likewise, he looks at them and says, in essence, as he repeats the words of his Savior to him, little children. But now he's got this to say to them. And here's where some assurance kicks in. I'm writing to you little children because. He's about to give with each of the becauses in this section reasons, you see, for reassurance. Here's the first of them all, because your sins are forgiven. For your sake? Doesn't say that, does it? Your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. Now begin to think this through. He says, your sins are forgiven. The word in the Greek for sins, we've considered this in prior weeks, haven't we? Throughout 2017 so far, hamartia, it means literally to miss the mark. All have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. It's as if you're aiming at the target and you have like an archer missed the mark, you see. Now, he looks at you and he looks at me and says, we came into this world with a sinful nature, and our sinful acts are due to the sinful nature. Our sinful nature is not due to our sinful acts. Our sinful acts are due to our sinful nature. We came into this world inheriting original sin. But then he makes this powerful statement of assurance. Your sins are forgiven. And here's what I want to draw out for us. The phrase are forgiven in the original language in the Greek is known as a perfect tense. God takes every word seriously. And a perfect tense verb means This is a past event that has present consequences. These people may be wrestling with their assurance. Am I, do I truly have a ticket? I've been living my life day in, day out, so stressed by life, I think I'm on standby. And then he says to all those who've repented of their sin. To all who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there is a definitive past event in your life 
that has ongoing present consequences for the way in which you address the issues of life. Your sins, you see, are forgiven. Past tense with present consequences. And now you can almost sense them breathing a sigh of relief. In chapter 1, verse 9, he had said, if we confess our sins, our homartia, he is faithful even if we are not. He is just even if we are not to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's the beauty of it all. Corey Ten Boom, maybe you've somewhere along the way picked up her book, Trump for the Lord had this to say about forgiveness. It was 1947. I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany at the end of the war with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the North Sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. So I said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And then God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. Do you ever get stressed out when you look back over your life? A decision you made? Maybe it's the way you once lived. Something that was said to someone you wish you could retract an experience that you could hit, wish you could hit delete on, but it's there in your history. There is something incredible about understanding the perfect tense. This is a past event with present consequences, the way in which you go about breathing today, spiritually, eternally. And if you're prone to do deep sea fishing, with your life experiences. Along comes a Corey Ten Boom that says, no fishing allowed. That was dealt with at the cross. You're new. You're born again. Only God hits delete. Not us. You see. All of a sudden, you say to yourself, maybe, just maybe, I don't have to live my life on standby. As this wave of assurance begins to make its way into your soul, is that what you need this morning? It's certainly what the readers needed as John wrote to them from Ephesus. 
I am writing to you, that's present tense, little ones, taking the wording from Jesus in that upper room. Because here's the reason, you see, for the reassurance. Your sins are forgiven, past tense, with present consequences. And now notice the next phrase. For his name's sake. It does not read, for your name's sake. It does not read, for my name's sake. And why is this? Because there is a name above all names. It's the name that was given to Joseph to name the child by God the Father above. So that God is our salvation would be understood each and every time our Christ made his way out on the streets and someone would point to him and say, Jesus. Which means literally, God is our salvation. For as the proverbial writer penned it in Proverbs chapter 18 verse 12, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So if you've been declared righteous based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the depth and the richness of that name above all names, Jesus, becomes that tower of strength for you. The righteous person runs into it. You're safe there. It's because of his name. Dr. Ironside understood that. You might recall a story, we've used it every now and then through the years, if you've been around a little bit. Well, Tsar Nicholas of Russia illustrates in many ways what Jesus Christ did on that cross for you and me. Ironside writes, the Tsar was incredibly interested in the welfare of a young man whose father had been the Tsar's friend. And when that young man came of age, Tsar Nicholas gave him an incredible position in the army and stationed him in a place of responsibility at one of the great fortresses of Russia. The young man was responsible for the finances of a particular division of the army. The young man did well at first, but as time went on, he became a gambler wasn't long until he had gambled away his fortune. He borrowed from the treasury, gambled that money away, a few rubles at a time. And then one day, one day he heard there was going to be an audit of the books the next day. He went to the safe, took out his ledger, figured out how much money he had taken, and then subtracted the amount that he had taken. And he discovered that he had an astronomical debt. And as he sat at the table, he took out his pen and penned this phrase, a great debt, who can pay? Not willing to go through the shame of what he would face the next day, he took out his revolver, decided that the stroke of midnight, he'd take his life. Ironside then tells us it was a warm and drowsy night. Young man sat at the table, dozed off. Now, Tsar Nicholas had a habit of putting on a soldier's uniform, visiting some of his outposts. 
On that very night, he came to the great fortress, and he inspected it, saw a light on one of the rooms, knocked on the door, no answer. Tried the latch, opened the door, went in, and there was the young man. And the Tsar recognized him immediately. And when he saw the note on the table, a great debt, who can pay? And the ledger opened, his first impulse was to wake the young man and arrest him. But then he had Tsar Nicholas was overwhelmed with a wave of generosity. Instead, he took the pen that had fallen from the soldier's hand, wrote one word on the same sheet of paper, and quietly left the room. About an hour later, the young man woke up, reached for his revolver, realizing it was long past midnight. Then he saw his note. Great debt. Who can pay? And there was one more word added. Nicholas. The name Nicholas. The young man dropped the gun, ran to the files, thumbed through the correspondence, found the Tsar's signature. The note was authentic. And suddenly it dawned on him, the Tsar had been there. He had undertaken the young man's debt. He would not die because of the Tsar's name. The debt was paid. Reason for reassurance. Because your sins are forgiven, past event, present consequences, for not my name's sake, not your name's sake, his name's sake, there is no other name. You take a deep breath. Do I really want to treat my Christian experience as though I'm forever on standby? When a ticket has been secured by the one who said it is finished and paid the debt and set me free? But now he goes to a second grouping of people, doesn't he, as he continues to work this cycle of reassurance. And after having identified little children in verse 12, he moves on now to the fathers in verse 13, first part, and says, in essence, I am writing to you now, fathers. Why? Another because. He repeats himself. Here's your next because. Reason for reassurance? Because you know him who is from the beginning. Stop right there. Because God is a grammarian, you see. He knows his grammar better than you and I do. Certainly better than I do. You know it better than I. But he once again utilizes a perfect tense. And so what he's now saying once again is that this is a a past event that has present consequences. What he is saying literally is, You knew him then, and as a result, you know him now. You came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior then, therefore you are growing in knowing him now. Now you nor I are willing to settle for informational knowledge. This is far more significant than informational, as we noted a few weeks back. This is personal It's not merely knowing something about. It is knowing the author of. 
And now the author of the scriptures, through the writing of the Apostle John in this letter, he is, says, because you know. In other words, you came to know him and you are growing in your knowledge of him because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, if you haven't done it yet, you're going to want to order yourself a copy of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And there is something powerful in one of his statements. He uses an analogy, and Packer is from London, England, you see. So get the analogy. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him into London, put him down without explanation, Trafalgar Square, leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing the God who owns this world and runs this world. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place. And life is disappointing and unpleasant for those who do not know God. Now here's the thing. If you know God, then you're trafficking among people day in, day out in your neighborhood, in your workplace, extended family situations, who are like the Amazonian tribesmen who has been transplanted in, in Trafalgar Square, and now cruelly they're trying to make their way around life. And there you are with a tremendous sense of, I've got a confirmed ticket. You feel secure because you are secure if you know Jesus, if you are able to say, my sins have been forgiven, past event, present consequences. Know Jesus, past event, present consequences. Do you see how this equips you to handle the storms of life that come your way? You know him if you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring your way? You know him even if you don't know what your work experience is going to be like next month? You know him even though you don't know what your medical challenges are going to be a year from now? You know him? It's not what you know. It's who you know that has eternal consequences in the Trafalgar squares of life. But now there's a third grouping here as he inches us from little children to fathers, and then adds now young men, because at the second part of verse 13, he again utilizes this phrase, I am writing to you, but now he says, I am writing to you, young men. And then another because. Here's your third because. Reason for reassurance. And then here kicks in your perfect tense. Again, you have overcome the evil one. doesn't say you might overcome the evil one. Astoundingly, what he says to the believer at this point, you have overcome the evil one. Perfect tense, past event with present consequences for you. 
when you start to feel threatened spiritually. Now you take into account what Jesus Christ went through in his temptation. And in Matthew chapter 4, there was Jesus. And he was just minding his own business when this voice from heaven had said at the end of chapter 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the evil one now takes that into account and wants to do some scripture twisting. Right after the mountaintop experience of baptism, where this declaration from heaven is such that God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Before you can even exhale, the next verse of chapter 4, verse 1 says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Have you pondered that? He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil? It doesn't say he was led by the devil to be tempted by the devil. It says he was lit up by the Spirit. After having been so affirmed as to who he is, that his identity was firmly established, and the first challenge from the evil one, the tempter came to him and said, If you are what? The Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right after God the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, the evil one piggybacks on that and wants to turn it into a conditional. Maybe you should consider stand by Jesus. If you are the Son of God, condition, command these stones to become loaves of bread. How do you get a new sense of confirmation? How do you get a new sense of certainty about life? It is written was the immediate response by Jesus to the tempter, Paul Murphy. Paul Murphy was traveling in Europe and went to this European gallery. And across from him was a painting that showed a chessboard with the devil sitting on a chair on one side and a young man with a dejected look on his face on the other. And the title told the story, Checkmated. Paul Murphy, the only American chess champion of the world prior to Bobby Fischer, sat down in front of that painting, pulled up a chair. There were some news press people around him and watched as he gazed at that painting in silent reflection for a long time. When all of a sudden, he leaped from that chair and shouted out, You've got one more move. An exclamation point from the chess master. The phrase, it is written, is the exclamation point from the chess master. And so now, not once, not twice, but now for a third time, God utilizes through the penmanship of the Apostle John a perfect tense, past event with 
present consequences. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, it's almost as if he's gotten up at his cafe in Ephesus, gone to get another cup of coffee, going to come back to his laptop, sit down. And what you're going to see in what follows, in the second part of verse 13, the end part of verse 13, on chapter 14, it's almost as if he repeats himself, doesn't he? But you've got your insert in front of you, and you notice that it began with the I am writing to you three times, little children. I am writing to you fathers. I am writing to you young men. But now it shifts. Subtle, but it's real. It no longer reads, I am writing to you. It now reads, I write to you. What's the difference? The difference is, is that I write to you now is in the past tense. It's almost as if he wants to go back and repeat himself as to what he has previously said to them to reassure them. Now, I know what you're going to be doing later on today and tomorrow. You're going to build a snowman. You've been tracking weather.gov. I know you have. You know what's coming our way. And you're thinking about the Apostle John at this point because everything seems so circular. He just keeps coming back to the same thing again and again and again, doesn't he? Kind of like true and false, light and dark. He's about to repeat himself. But is this circular reasoning? Actually, it's linear reasoning. Because I know how you do your snowmen. You start off with something snow. You pack it. It's a round snowball. And rather than firing at one of your loved ones nearby, you get down on your knees and you begin to push it. What happens? Oh, it's, it's linear forward movement, isn't it? But yet it's circular and it's accumulating and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, what John is doing at this point is not providing circular reasoning. It's linear reasoning, but what he is doing now is he's expanding through a circular format forward movements so that we continue to progress in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, until finally we've got frosty on our hands here. And you've got a very solid, large foundation to work. And so he shifts now from, I am writing to you, present, to I write to you, or you could write, I wrote to you, past. And then it kicks in again, another round of assurance. Because at the end of verse 13, now I write to you, and then he goes on to say, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. But you say, but Gary... Round one, it was little children. Round two, just says children. And you are observant. Because round one, little children, is a different Greek word than round two, children. Round two, children, carries with the idea of somebody who is under authority. And so now all who have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this fits into that category here. And what does he say to them? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 
And here's the astounding thing about it, and I hope you write this down. For the fourth time now, the fourth time, he uses the perfect tense. He's saying, you came to know the Father, and you know the Father. Don't live life on standby. There's a security here that gives you stamina to face the challenges of life here. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And you know the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. This is not informational. This is more so relational. This is not impersonal. This is personal. And then after having established that, he then shifts his attention from the paideia of the children to in verse 14, verse 1, the second grouping, I write to you, fathers. And lo and behold, he has something in common between father and child. Again, he states, because you know him who is from the beginning. Another because, another reason for reassurance. And then, just as he had stated at the end of verse 13 for the children, now he states for the fathers at the beginning of 14, you know him who is from the beginning. And now for the fifth time, he uses the perfect tense. Father, like son. Son, like father. Perfect tense, past event with present consequences. You established a relationship with him. You knew him then. You were growing and knowing him now. And now somebody who is old in the faith and someone new in the faith have this in common. A qualitative relationship with God. Quantitatively, the one who has known God longer might say to himself, well, I know more. But the question is not so much do you know more, but who do you know? And what that little child and that adult has in common is that qualitatively they know God. And then he ends with this. At the end of verse 14, I write to you, young men. For the sixth time, he uses the word because. Why? You are strong. This is a reminder to you and me, men and women alike, that life is a battleground, not a playground. And it is meant... God's word to strengthen us to face the challenges of life just in the very same way God, when he empowered Joshua to take the reins as God had taken Moses to be with him. Not once, not twice, but repetitively challenged him to be strong in the Lord. And now you and I are challenged to be strong because you and I, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are strong. And where does the strength come from? Look at what comes next. The word of God abides in you. Not merely around you. In you. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. You internalize it. 
And then you externalize what has previously been internalized to make a difference in the lives of those around you. And if that isn't enough, for the sixth time now, he uses the perfect tense, a past event to provide a present consequence. You have overcome the evil one. And you pull all that together. And you see now how what God is doing is that he is, he's accumulated something of significance to give you a solid foundation like that snowball that got turned into the snowman. Something that he continued to come back to and expanded upon that allows for you and me in the next time we have an airport experience where we are watching observing the difference between the passengers who hold confirmed tickets and those who are on standby to begin to ponder the significance of what it means to be secure in Jesus Christ and to remind ourselves we do not have to live our lives as though this is one continual standby experience, but rather there is confirmation based upon the one who said it is finished. On the cross, you nor I can either add to nor subtract from. This is God's work alone. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father, for the way in which you repeat yourself. Because you use repetition for expansion allowing us to gain a greater and bigger understanding of who you are, a greater and bigger understanding as to how you work as you keep moving things forward. And so as everything keeps moving forward in life, Father, minister to the heart now of that person who came here this morning struggling and wondering if there is one in the service or more who came spiritually curious but not have not yet experienced the perfect tense. I pray that they will put faith and trust now in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so that they can look back upon this and see that there is a past event that is, has an ongoing present consequence in their life journey with you. Thank you, Father, for meeting us at our point of need. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.